Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we get to talk about Rockets wins. And I said wins like plural. We also go over some moves the Astros did and didn't make this week. Plus, we pay tribute to three Houston sports figures we lost this week. And yeah, 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 there's the Texans. Turns out they're still turkeys on Thanksgiving weekend. Same old Texans. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, the Rockets have done one of those extreme home makeovers. It's amazing what happens when you knock out a big eyesore like Daniel Tice and make room for open-air three-point shooters, which completely enhances the tall wooden structure. I mean, the Christian wood structure in the middle of the living room. Lo and behold, I'm in tears after seeing the reconstruction. Oh, help me. Help me maintain my composure here. (laughs) Well, I'm trying to maintain my composure, Robert. I know we're going to get to the Texans later, but first, before we get to all this, I want to say thank you for allowing me to be back on the podcast because, you know, last week I was out. I didn't watch the Texans. You know, Sean Bajani stepped up. They won. I watched them today, Robert, and they lost. So I don't know if it's just you're, you know, feeling sorry for me, trying to uh, stroke my ego. But whatever the reason, I appreciate it, buddy. That that makes me happy. And the Rockets winning two in a row, that makes me happy too. And then this construction thing you're talking about, I mean, it, it's still not even – I mean, the, the foundation, I guess, is laid. They, they, they might have started a little bit on the, you know, some of the stuff, but – it's still a work in progress, but I watched, I think, most of the second half and the overtime of that Charlotte game. And while the defense was nowhere to be found, man, the offense certainly was. That was quite interesting to see the, the way this young team has at least responded the last couple games. Stephen, what we didn't tell the Houston Sports Talk crowd was why you weren't here last week, which was because you were having a conversation with Stephen Silas going over our ideas because he yeah. finally took our advice, right? <laughs> yeah, why well, wasn't he listening to you and he was listening to me? That's I'm kind of puzzled about that. You know, maybe I maybe the bringing him a free turkey must have helped. I don't know, but yeah. Uh we've been talking about this for a long time, Robert, and just that, you know, one of the criticisms I've had of Stephen Silas is just the the rotations he's been using have not been effective and it's just taken him so long to make some changes. And I know he's, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot to work with, but we've been talking about that ad nauseum. There are some guys on this team who can contribute, and we found that out, especially in this last game. But certainly in the last couple of games, you know, you're, you were saying Christian Wood coming through the way he did. Don't forget, Jalen Green is out. I mean, that's that, that's even more amazing of what they've been doing right now. It's real disappointing because Jalen Green started off that Chicago game, and, and they won the game, of course, but it, it was just disappointing because he started off as well as I've seen him start off a game. And it wasn't just he was hitting shots. It was the way he was getting to the basket. It was everything that he was doing on the court. His intensity. Yeah. Yeah, That's a lot of it. Yeah. And and it was, but it was just like the confidence level he was playing with. And, you know, he had 11 points in the first quarter before he got hurt. So that's disappointing. It's also really scary that he's having these hamstring issues over and over again. We saw it, saw it in summer league. You know, he was having those same hamstring issues. Yeah. And how many Houston athletes do we talk about that? Uh, you know, once they get one, it just, it pops up again. And it, of course, at the worst possible times, not that there's a good time to get an injury, but you're thinking, gosh, if the Rockets do rebuild and, you know, somewhere in the future and they make the postseason, please tell me we're not going to have a, a Jalen Green hamstring or something. But 
right now, you know, it is still a concern. But the good news is, I mean, this team is is playing well, even with him not in the lineup, because some of these guys are, are starting to take good shots. And, you know, they made some good threes. They're, they're going to the rim. You know, things are falling into place. I mean, this team had a, a terrible offensive efficiency. I think they were dead last before these last two games. So that's what's been so great to see. They're going to say all these things of, oh, well, it's just everybody else has started to play better. They're not going to say, hey, this is about the fact that Daniel Tice was not a good fit and he could not space the floor. And Christian Wood, when he was signed with the Rockets, he was signed as a center. He was signed as somebody that could be a five that could play five out basketball with the Rockets. And remember last year, he looked like an all-star before he went down early in the season when he had the injury and, and they were playing that type of ball. They were playing the small ball with Christian Wood at, at the center. And it's not just the fact that Christian Wood is playing great and they finally got him playing in the right position, but the court also gets opened up. Like I said earlier, when you put in three point shooters, Eric Gordon is now in the starting lineup. And I, I know he's going to stay in the starting lineup when Jalen green comes back because he opens up the floor for guys. You know what else they did? They started playing Armani Brooks. And Armani Brooks, guess what? When he gets regular playing time, is a hell of a shooter. I call him the Rockets' Duncan Robinson. And also, what about Garrison Matthews? Where did this kid come from? Not just the outside shooting, but he's playing some defense and drawing charges left and right. Every time you look up, Garrison Matthews is on the ground and he's getting a call by the refs of charging. So... Uh, it just, it's, it's playing not just Christian Wood at center, but it's opening up the floor because the Rockets haven't had shooters. Look at the starting lineup, Steven. It's Daniel Tice can't shoot Christian Wood, who it seems like when he's on the floor with a bunch of non-shooters, it, it's like a disease he catches and he can't shoot either, but Jalen Green couldn't shoot. Kevin Porter couldn't shoot. Jay Sean Tate couldn't shoot. It was just five guys on the floor that can't shoot. And now you've got. Two guys we know they can shoot in Eric Gordon, and it looks like Garrison Matthews, but also, you know, the other guys, it seems to be contagious. They're, they're shooting better, too. And, you know, Robert, that's a good point. And I think a lot of it does come with confidence and momentum. You know, if, you, if one guy sees other guys taking shots and making them, it kind of gives them confidence. Hey, you know, I can do that, too. I mean, it's not all just physical talent. I mean, obviously, that's a lot to do with it. But it, it you can play off each other's momentum. I I absolutely agree with that. And Christian Wood, I mean, this is the Christian Wood we, you know, we've we been wanting to see. You know, the question is, can he stay consistent? Because he's had some games where he's like, where is he? Is he even in the lineup? So he needs to continue this. And Garrett Matthews, I was thinking the same thing, Robert. It's funny. I was watching the Charlotte game, and I'm going, man, this Garrett Matthews, where, where'd he come from? And obviously, it's a small sample size, and it's still so early in the season to get too excited about it. But boy, considering... You know, after losing 15 in a row, man, I'll take anything at this point to make me happy with the Rockets. Is it Garrett or Garrison? The guy like came out of nowhere, so I don't even know what his name is yet. You say Garrett, I said Gar Garrison. I, I, think I, I think it may be Garrison. I, you may be right. I, I'll just call him Matthews. I know that's his last name. So, yeah, you might actually be right. If he keeps playing like this, you got to learn his name. He had 20 in the overtime win against the, the, the Charlotte Hornets the other night. And, I mean, you just you cannot believe that somebody that – Literally, anybody could have picked up, and I think the Rockets did have first rights to him because of their worst record in the NBA, so they got to pick him up and put him on a two-way contract. So all of a sudden, you know, he went from 
just playing in the G League to now he's a starter for the Rockets and he's a starter with them winning a game that they don't do that often this year. So it's just, it's really crazy how fortunes can change quickly if you're an NBA player. And as the season goes on, I mean, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot more of these guys coming in, you know, whether it's because of injuries, because of ineffectiveness, and that's, that's really what they need to start doing. But here's the thing, you know, once they find a good combination, they need to stick with it as long as possible. And yeah, I love the fact that Eric Gordon's in the lineup Gosh, if Eric Gordon can stay healthy, he's got that presence the Rockets so desperately need with all these young guys around. And I've been saying it over and over again that that's what they need. I know they're in rebuilding mode, but they've got to have some floor leadership. And Eric Gordon, with his shooting, when it's on, gives them that plus that floor leadership that the Rockets so desperately need. Kevin Porter, since he came back from the injury, he's looked better. And I'm still not a big fan of Kevin Porter. He's still got a lot to prove. He, he's getting better. He seems to be doing things a little bit better offensively since he came back. But again, I got to see consistency. One or two good games in a row does not make you the end-all be-all. And, and that's the thing about Kevin Porter. It's, it's about consistency, not just from game to game, but from possession to possession. And there were still possessions late in the game on Saturday night in the win in overtime that – you know, you, you just like, well, where's Kevin Porter's head? You know, he, he he decides to go to the basket when he could have run some time off the clock by dribbling. Now, they may still have fouled him, and it m- might not have taken much more time off the clock, but that was a situation where you just have to be aware. You pull the ball out there. You don't try to go to the basket and score at that moment in the game. You, you, you've got basically the game in hand if they don't foul you pretty quickly. And the other thing was, you know, he missed a free throw, which, you know, that's what Kevin Porter and Christian Wood, that's what they do not just in, in, yeah. in big situations, yeah. but they do throughout it the game. It let them back in the game. As, you know, it let them back in the game, that missed free throw. And yeah, I, I mean, we keep waiting for that consistency. Now, I, I did see where KPJ did say that, you know, the injury gave him some time to reflect, maybe get his head back in the game a little bit. Well, I certainly hope so, because that really is what's stopping him short, Robert, of being the kind of player that everybody says he is. But you and I keep waiting to see it. But, you know, I liked his shot selection in the Charlotte game. I liked his intensity. So if he can just come back with that and and keep it going, then that's all the better for the Rockets. I think he does very well with the Christian Wood pick and roll. And you saw the decision making in the last couple of games with Christian Wood on that pick and roll. It, It was better. And it helps that if guys decide to collapse on Christian Wood, that you have shooters, again, that they can go to, that Kevin Porter can throw the ball out to if he makes the right read. That's what they can do. And now it's interesting because Kevin Porter, he's a little bit uh, under the gun because John Wall says, hey, I want to play now. And the Rockets, you know, they don't mind him playing, but the story is Wall wants to start and the Rockets are committed to Porter and Green in the starting lineup. They're fine with Wall coming off the bench, basically taking DJ Augustine's minutes, what would you do, Stephen? He wants to start. That's why he wants to play. Do you let him play if it's not going to be under his terms? Are you okay with him coming off the bench just for 15 or 20 minutes? Because I know both of us were like, let's let's just you know bring back John Wall and have him start and have that professionalism out there. But right now what they're doing is working all of a sudden with Christian Wood at center and, and Daniel Tice out of the picture. Well, I don't have a problem with Wall coming off the bench, and that's probably his role. And, and yeah, that that's kind of the sticking point. But you know what? 15 to 20 minutes of John Wall, I'd say, is better than nothing. And just considering how questionable his durability may be, 
and things of that nature. But I just I want to I want to see John Wall on the floor in some capacity, especially when the Rockets are going through these cold stretches. And, you know, if they get into another long losing streak or something, then you start John Wall. I mean, look, you've got plenty of time to develop these guys through the whole season. You're probably well, you know, the Rockets are certainly trying to trade Wall. It might happen at the trade deadline. For however long you have him, you might as well use him. He's making too much money to sit around and be a quote-unquote player coach. So you know what? If it's 15 or 20 minutes of John Wall, whether it's starting or off the bench, especially now now if things continue to go well for the Rockets the way they are with these young guys on the floor, then yeah, you bring John Wall off the bench. You don't start him. But if they start running into another stumbling block where they're losing you know, multiple double-digit games in a row— then start the guy, and you can still play him 15, 20 minutes. I'm not saying give him 38 to 40, for goodness sake. But John Wall on the floor, to me, if he can contribute, is better than not having him at all, as much from a leadership standpoint as a result standpoint. Stephen, I'm not okay with John Wall dictating what he gets to do. So, Well, he- no, I'm not either. I, that's why I'm saying I don't have a problem with him coming off the bench, but at least play him something. You, you're paying him way too much money to just sit on the bench. You know, if it's fine if he wants to come back. But he's going to have to come up back off the bench, and he's going to come back with what the Rockets want to do. And yeah, if he ends up starting later, that's potentially possible because we don't know what Jalen Green's injury is going to be. Is this going to be an off and on thing all year with the hamstring? We don't know how Kevin Porter is going to play. You know, it, tell me what's going to happen, and I'll tell you if I want him in the starting lineup or not. But yeah, John, you can come back, but you don't get to dictate that, and I get tired of. These guys in the NBA thinking that they can dictate what they're going to, you know, this is not your, your coaching. This is Steven Silas as the coach and, and Stone as the general manager. And that's not your job. You know, if you want to win ball games, let's do what the, the team thinks is best. And let's be a team player in that. And John Wall is not the superstar anymore that everybody is, you know, begging to get right now. You don't get to make that choice. You're not James Harden in top three MVP conversations on a yearly basis. Sorry, brother. Yeah, I was just going to, you took the words right out of my mouth, Robert. He is not a superstar status anymore. You're not LeBron James. You're not James Harden or, you know, what James Harden was when he was with the Rockets who could dictate that sort of thing. It's, yeah, it's a disturbing trend, Robert. And, and unfortunately, it's happening in all sports, not just basketball. But I think the NBA, you seem to see it more than in most places. Good one or two players can certainly make the difference of how a team does or doesn't do so, yeah, I'm with you. You know, John Wall shouldn't be able to dictate that. I mean, I think the Rockets, for the most part, were just fine with him not playing. But now he says he wants to come back, but it has to be on his terms. Well, no, it, you know, it needs to be on the Rockets' terms, and it needs to be able to help the club. Yeah, you're in a rebuilding mode, and you're going to need these young guys out there to see what you've got with them. But in in the right situation, I still say that having John Wall on the floor, floor is better for the Rockets than not having him, at least until you can swing a deal for him. And it sure would be fun to have John Wall out there with Kevin Martin on the fast break. Ken, I mean, Kenyon Martin on the fast break and, and Armani Brooks to throw to at the three-point three line because the, the Rockets, they've talked about being a fast break team, but Porter and Augustine are not fast break point guards and, and John Wall is. And then you look at the upcoming schedule for the Rockets and John Wall or no John Wall, there, there's some winnable games after beating... The Bulls that are very legit this year, the Hornets that are definitely frisky and could be playoff contenders all year, but you've got two games against Oklahoma City. Now they lost against Oklahoma City the last time, but this looks like a different Rockets team with the Daniel Tice 
absent now and and then the magic and and that's a winnable game and then after that you got new orleans and then it gets hard again you got brooklyn and milwaukee coming up after that but they can win three or four or five here in a row if they continue to play like they're playing especially on the offensive end i mean defensively the hornets are tough but you know that wasn't exactly a a defensive game by the rockets uh, (laughs) against the hornets but the hornets they were not missing open three-point shots. And just because you leave a three-point shooter open, it doesn't mean that they're going to make them time after time, but the Hornets sure were making them, and they were doing it on a second of a back-to-back. So yeah, the defense wasn't great, but give the Hornets credit a little bit too on Saturday's game. And look, the way the Rockets have been playing before, you'll take a win any way you can get it. You don't need style points for you know winning ugly or anything like that. You just, a win's a win, and and at this point, the Rockets will take it. Me being in Austin, Robert, I don't get a lot of the Rockets games on television unless they're on national TV, and you and I know that's not going to happen much this season. So I was listening to the radio broadcast on the app, and I caught most of the second half in the overtime, and I noticed, yeah, Charlotte was making some good shots. Kelly Oubre Jr. wasn't until he got a technical foul, and then it's like somebody lit a fire under him, and he started making them. But the Rockets came through when they needed to, and it's got to be a confidence builder for this team that – just hasn't had very many of them. And the schedule is is really crazy, man. Going to play Oklahoma City again here, and they'll be done with Oklahoma City for the whole season and not even in December. So, yeah, they've got some winnable games coming up. If you can just get some momentum, and then if you do get into that hard stretch against some of the tougher teams and start losing again, you'll at least, you know, have some confidence of being in a better position by that point. Steven Silas took a little bit of umbrage with everybody coming at him this week. And, you know, I, I saw in the post game where he wasn't happy. And look, Steven, you, you, you won a game. You ended up winning a couple of games this week. But, hey, the time it took you to make this decision and, and you can't get all pissy about it because the Rockets fans and the media and everybody that was saying what the Rockets should do, they were all right. And you were slow to react. And, you know, do I want Steven Silas gone as bad as I wanted him gone a few days ago? No, but it it doesn't give me any more confidence that it takes him this long to figure it out. Because if you're going to be a great coach, you got to figure out things in seconds, not games. If you're going to win in the playoffs and you're going to do things on a bigger scale than just winning in the regular season. So, yeah, Steven, congratulations on that. And, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to give him a longer leash now, but... Hey, this can't happen. You cannot take this long to make decisions like this and big decisions that, you know, where a team is going because losing, I don't care what the draft odds improve or whatever, because, you know, it doesn't matter. You got to figure out how to incorporate a winning environment. And that starts with winning games. And, you know, this idea that you automatically get a top pick or a top five pick or whatever, that's not the case anymore with the lottery odds. So, you know, you've you got to think about winning and, and getting there first. Well, that's right. And and here's the thing, Robert. I mean, I agree. Steven Stylus, you know, how do you how long does it take you to realize that something that you're doing in your rotation isn't working? Most coaches don't need a 15 game losing streak to figure that out. But here's the question I have for you, Robert. And I mean, how much of this is Steven Silas being Steven Silas? And how much of it is because it's become obvious to me that Raphael Stone is a very hands-on general manager to the point of basically talking to the players at practice, consulting with them, when that should be the coach's job. I mean, I just feel like at at some point, this is going to hurt Steven Silas and the team more than anything else. If the guy's not a good coach, you're going to find that out regardless. But how much of this is Raphael Stone 
maybe putting his hands in a little bit too much of the cookie jar where he doesn't need to be. Yeah, it could be. And we talked a little bit with Sean Bajani last week about Stone being hands-on. And I agree. Right. I don't know how much of his influence was uh, Tice being in the starting lineup on a regular basis. But, you know, something tells me that one of the two of them finally made that decision to pull the plug. But I, I just, I can't imagine Stone was like, you know what? Let's just keep trying to lose with what we're doing. I mean, the analytics were all there. What's the point of being worried about pissing off Daniel Tice? Like, who cares? And 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 if you're playing a guy that sucks all the time, you're not increasing his trade value if that's what you're trying to do with Daniel Tice. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see Stone going, oh, you've got to, and now... Now I'm going to make you pull him out of the starting. Like, what point is he in the decision decision making process? None of it made any sense. I guess I, until otherwise told, I'm going to fall back on this was a sightless move because typically GMs don't make the decision on who starts or who does. I mean, the John Wall situation is like a whole other deal, but that that's typically right, not what right. happens. You know what? If you're right, here's the thing. I had to learn this the hard way when I was in management. You know, if you're Steven Silas and you've got to make tough decisions, you can't put on the kid gloves. You you can't worry about these players' feelings. Look, they're professionals. They're making plenty of money. You've got to do what's best for the team. And if it means making a hard decision to take somebody out of the lineup because they're not performing well, especially when that player is not even close to being a superstar, which Daniel Tice is not, <laughs> by the way, then that's what you do. And, and that's what you do if you're going to learn to be a great head coach You've got to make those tough decisions and not him and haw about it. You got to make it as soon as possible. So that may be true. And I, as I said, I, I don't think it's entirely the case, but I'm just thinking long-term big picture here. You know, if Rafael Stone is more hands-on than he probably should be, how long is it going to take the players to tune out the coach? That's kind of what I'm saying with that. Yeah, that's what we don't know. I wish I knew a little bit more how involved he is and what all he's doing. I mean, his mentor is Daryl Morey and, and Morey, I don't think he stuck his nose in quite that much. I mean, he, he would give the information to the coaches and of course it was Dan Tony. So it's a different situation. It's a, it's right. a veteran. It's a guy that's had an incredible track record and taken teams deep into the playoffs before, you know, I, I, I don't see Daryl, you know, I, I don't see him doing that sort of thing with, with Steven Silas, even if Daryl was still here. So, you know, I, but you know, Rafael Stone might, might think, well, what Daryl was doing didn't always work. So I, you know, who knows? Well, that's true too. But at the same time, you know, how long do you need to keep the training wheels on, so to speak? I mean, this is his second year in the league now. Yeah. Last year was, you know, an anomaly. It was crazy, but it was still his first year. He got through that, you know, and that was pretty disastrous. So this is his second year. At what point you just, you know, you, you got to ride the bike on two wheels here and be on your own more. So that's the thing that concerns me just from, again, from a big picture standpoint, but right now you've won two in a row. You, you have a rotation that might start paying some dividends with some of these young guys. So hopefully the Rockets can keep it going and, you know, at least for a little bit longer. On the other hand, we have the Texans that had that huge winning streak stopped this week. And Justin <laughs> Reed made it extremely interesting with what came out for him on Sunday. So Justin Reed, is a healthy scratch, but because according to Ryan Clark, who's close to Reed, because of a disagreement with the Texans coaching staff, Clark said he Reed told him the coaches asked him a question. He gave an honest answer and it wasn't what the coaches wanted to hear. And as the world turns with the Texans, it's, it's always <laughs> something. And 
they couldn't even make one win in a row before they're screwing things up. And, you know, that all ha- goes down, I guess, you know, late in the week. And, and Justin Reed doesn't play anything. I mean, just Texans being Texans, I guess. And David Cully fits right in line with the O'Briens and, and all the garbage with not getting along with the guys on the field. And Justin Reed's an honest guy. You know, one thing I'm looking f- forward to, I hope Justin Reed writes a book because he's very oh, literate guy, yeah. Stephen. He's very yeah. thoughtful. And I'm hoping he writes a book about <laughs> what happened. Yeah, I kind of like the way uh, Case Keenum wrote a book and was, you know, pretty tell all about Bill O'Brien and how he handled that situation. Yeah, I'd like to see Justin Reed's book, too. And, you know, I think I saw a tweet from Mark Berman that uh, Justin was actually pretty shocked that the coaches made him inactive for this game because of this situation. So it caught him a little by surprise. And Robert, here I was praising David Cully because he actually outcoached Mike Vrabel of the Titans well, I knew it couldn't last because here he goes again. Who knows? The, the whole Justin Reed thing is a bit disjointed. We don't know all the details. So, you know, we, we can't just throw David Culley completely under the bus here. But as you said, it's uh, as the Texans turn, just another thing, another distraction for a really bad team. And I don't think that's the reason they lost today. But again, it just it all adds up at the end of the day. I trust Justin Reed before I trust David Culley. Yeah, I think so. Put it that way. <laughs> Um, really good drive for the Texans first drive until Tyrod's pass is intercepted by John Franklin Myers on a screen pass, partly a bad job by Tyrod for not getting the ball over the lineman and partly bad luck that the ball bounced in the air perfectly into Franklin Myers hands. We go over the games as much as possible afterwards, and we'll, we'll go over the play by play of the game, Stephen. but this is how things started and Tyrod went from looking really bad against the Dolphins to it was okay last week. Not great, but he was a little bit better this week. I, I, I didn't think we ha- saw the, the really good Tyrod back again from those early games in the season. No, I'm afraid not. And, you know, especially in the second half when everything just went south, I mean, I was like, wait, did they put Davis Mills in the game and I just missed it? Because he definitely is, I don't know, you know, since he's come back from the injury, Robert, he's just been kind of fits and starts where it's not the Tyrod Taylor certainly that we saw in the first game plus at the beginning of the season, the mistakes that were being made and the offensive line, you know, once again is another patchwork job and he gets sacked four times in the first half, by the way, not all of it was him certainly, but it's just, it all adds up again. The the Texans are just inept in so many different areas that the offense just can't even get anything going. And even when it looked like they did, they stubbed their toe with an interception and they were fortunate that the defense came up, you know, they bent. They didn't quite break. The Jets just got a field goal out of it. Otherwise, it had been worse. Yeah, great red zone defense right there. Jacob Martin with the huge play. He beats the left tackle and the running back to get the sack on third and goal. Yeah, 3 nothing Jets right there. Um, yeah, if you've never listened to us, we go through the games possession by possession because it really gives you an idea of what happened in the game. And we watch the game so you guys don't have to because I know it's so tough to, <laughs> to watch the Texans these days offensively the Texans three and out the next time Tyrod sacked on a third down blitz defensively the Texans get a little help from Zach Wilson who looked oh so terrible he looked Davis Mills bad for for the Jets in the first half with a weird shovel pass to his running back who wasn't looking at Wilson so the ball bounces off his back and Tavir Thomas intercepted so that the Texans get a break and they're you know they're they're looking good early kind of well, you know, here's the thing about Zach Wilson, Robert, that, that I've noticed, and, and I saw it quite a bit throughout the game. He's throwing the ball too hard. You know, when your receivers are, what, 
seven, eight, ten yards down the field, and you're you're trying to act like you're Nolan Ryan or something and throwing a hundred miles an hour fastball footballs, your receivers aren't going to catch that. You know, there was one where I, I can't remember the the Texans defender who almost made an interception in the second half. The ball was thrown too hard. I mean, even he could he certainly wasn't going to make the play. So yeah, the Texans unfortunately couldn't always take advantage of Zach Wilson because he was making plenty of mistakes. And he had a knee brace, too, and he was, you know, he had a, a good run, too, that kind of made you shake your head. So, yeah, unfortunately, the Texans had an opportunity to beat this guy, and they just couldn't. Yeah, I wasn't too hard that time. It was just kind of this panic shovel pass. Yeah, that one wasn't. Yeah, the Texans take advantage of the turnover. Tyrod with a great read under blitz pressure on third and goal at the 13, finds Brevin Jordan for the touchdown. It's 7-3, to three. then on defense, it's a three and out. Texans continue to look good in the first half, which has been sort of their M.O. at times this year. Six-play, 67-yard drive. The next one, a 40-yard touchdown pass. Tyra with a beautiful throw to Brandon Cooks, and then Cooks, tough catch in coverage. Great play on both ends, and it's 14-3. to three. Well, you know what? Let's go back to that first touchdown, because guess who made that catch, Robert? You've been talking about him all season long. How about Brevin Jordan? Yeah, I mean, you, you've got one guy that's looked really good for the Texans at tight end this year, and it's the guy that they drafted this year. It's, of course, nobody that was drafted by the Bill O'Brien administration. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good just in that respect. But the, the fact that it took him so long to get him in the lineup finally, you and I kept asking, where's Brevin Jordan? Where's Brevin Jordan? Well, you know, that he's had one catch for a touchdown, certainly, but at least he showed something. So, yeah, the Texans' offense was was starting to look like maybe it could get some consistency. But you and I, of course, always know what happens when that when we start talking like that. The defense, three and out. Again, it's, it's still going good. We're eight yep. possessions into the game, nine possessions in. Although it was going good, they, they had a three and out. Dry broke down on a sack on second down. Charlie Heck beaten badly at right tackle. Charlie Heck, again, we go back to it. It's a Bill O'Brien draft where he drafted a bunch of garbage i'm going to get to that in a second but the next possession on defense texans start to fall apart here 10 play 70 yard drive austin walter two yard touchdown it's 14 to 11 and steven it 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 comes back to just texans being texans on the last drive of the half on offense weird drive where it looked like they were pretending to drive for a field goal but not really the clock management was just like what and the play calling it was like a just a weird play on third down i'm like that's not going to get you any close to a field goal it's like they're we're trying but we're not trying and we're playing it safe but we want to try but we don't you know they didn't know what they were doing yeah, I really was puzzled a lot about the play calling. That was certainly one of them, Robert. And, you know, we, we've had some praise for Tim Kelly, I guess, early on in the season. But as time goes on, I, I just I scratch my head at some of these plays. The the one, I think it was to uh, Moore, a pass for a loss. You know, it, it's these kind of things. And the, the screen passes that continue not to work, you, you got to go to something different and make something happen down the field. Yeah, Tim Kelly not having a good year after looking really good with Deshaun last year. And it wasn't just Deshaun. I thought... He did some things that really opened up things for the Texans, and, and he was making the right moves. And this year, he's making some weird moves, and it doesn't make any sense. So, again, the Texans fall out, totally fall apart in the second half like they normally do. Uh, defensively, after they held the Jets to a field goal, Ross Blacklock was called for a penalty, which kept the drive alive on the next play. Blacklock gets called for offsides, which negates a Jacob Martin sack. That was his seventh offsides, tied for most in the NFL. 
which leads to a Zach Wilson rushing TD. And I, I just got to go back to Blacklock here, Stephen. This was part of the Bill O'Brien draft with Charlie Heck and, you know, John Reed, who's already gone, and Isaiah Coulter, who's already gone. And the only ones left are Blacklock and Grenard. I think Blacklock was the second-round pick that they got for yeah. DeAndre Hopkins. And he not only seems like a bad player, but just a numbskull. You know, just he was that guy that... I think, or one of the guys that I think J.J. Watt was going after last year when he was talking about guys just not being prepared and not doing what they were supposed to do to help the team win. You know, that is such a puzzle to me, Robert. And I even heard this about Charles O'Menehue. You know, I heard the same thing about him and, and some other guys. When you're drafted into the NFL, how on earth are you not motivated to show up every day the fact that so many try and so many don't even get there. How is it a motivational question? I mean, I, I just don't understand how some of these guys, uh, they think they're entitled, I guess. I, well, I don't know. And, and but... Blacklock is a Houston area guy. You would think he that's would right. be as excited as anybody to play for the Texans. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and the fact that, you know, whether it's a motivational problem or you just, you get a lot of stuff thrown at you. I mean, obviously you do. It, it's a whole different game than it is in the college game. So, I'm, I, you know, there may be some of that going into it, but you know, the the two penalties back to back, I don't know if it was a case that, you know, he had the one and he tried so hard to make up for it that he just ended up totally losing his head again. But whatever the reason, you just can't have that sort of thing. But that's what happens when teams are bad. I mean, it just does. And I mean, that just really hurt the Texans from there on out. So the next drive, the Texans get into Jets territory. Tyrod takes a huge loss on his sack. Left guard Jimmy Morrissey just gets trucked on third down. Might as well have been Morrissey the singer because... That guy could have blocked just about as well. Man, the guys the Texans have playing on the O-line are just pathetic. <laughs> well, now, did you notice they moved Titus Howard to tackle? I think I saw where Brooks Cabina was kind of surprised by the move. I, I wasn't all that surprised. I mean, he wasn't doing well at guard to begin with. I didn't hear him get called for any penalties this game. Did he get called for any penalties this one? I don't think so. No, I that, so that's progress, I guess. I don't know that he did a great job. But, uh, yeah, at least he wasn't called for false starts or holding it <laughs> like he had been in so many different games past. Still want to see him play right tackle where Charlie Heck was playing and not left right. tackle where Laramie Tunsil is going to be back. I mean, th that's where he should be. That's where he had some success. And I mean, just like, do you need to have a special meeting with him like you had with Steven Silas and talk to this offensive line coach and say, look, Houston Sports Talk knows what they're talking about. Well, maybe, I mean, you know, I offered uh, Steven a free turkey. Maybe if I offer a free ham, you know, for <laughs> Christmas, maybe that, that'll do something. Now, now tell me something, Robert. I don't know if I miscalculated, but as I'm looking at my notes in the third quarter, I only showed the Texans had one possession that entire quarter. I mean, I know the Jets, they ate up a bunch of clock on those drives, but I only showed one possession in the third quarter. That can't be right. Well, it didn't matter because when the te the Texans did have the possession, they it, didn't do anything with it. Yeah, they yeah, couldn't do a right. darn thing. I mean, the Jets miss a 42-yard field goal, so, you know, Texans are still in the game, still down 18-14. to 14. Offensively, though, three and out. Defensively, again, the Texans, you know, they're keeping their team into the game, usually the, the, the defense, at least recently, and it's a three and out. The, the Texans on offense gain no yards after a short punt, gives them great field position. Ugh. I mean, just terrible. You get incredible field position. And so Fairbairn has to try a 55-yard field goal. We know what's going to happen there. He misses it, of course. Yeah. You know, the thing is, even on that third down pass, I think to Amendola, I mean, that wasn't going to get you anything. I mean, talk about a gift that the Jets were giving you. And again, Robert, 
It just go, comes down to the fact that the Texans have the absolute worst running game in history. Just just terrible. I don't care. Yeah, I, you know, Philip Lindsay's no longer there. You put Rex Burkhead in, you get the same results. I mean, you get a lot of carries. David Johnson, he looked pretty good at the beginning of the game. But as time wore on, the run game just looks like the Texans' run game always has this year. But, I mean, Stephen, the, you got Burkhead, who's young with all this potential, and David Johnson, who's young with, you know, got all these guys that are just really kids, and they're just learning things, right? I mean, the Texans, obviously, they, they put in running backs this year that they can build with and maybe do, right? Isn't that what happened? Yeah, well, and, and maybe when you sleep at night and you dream, Robert, but uh, <laughs> not in reality. And what? and look, I know, I know some of this is the offensive line. I get it. But look, none of these guys are going to be in the league in a couple of years, I'll bet you, because they just aren't being effective. It doesn't It doesn't matter who you put in there. These are not top caliber guys, and that's who the Texans need. So, okay, the Jets then have a nice drive, sets up a field goal 21-14, to 14, and it comes down to the Texans' offense. And we know what's going to happen, I guess, because uh, they, they get to fourth and two, and then Tyrod, he tried to force it to Nico Collins, who couldn't hang on in tight coverage, but if you watch the play, and it was so obvious, even, you know, you didn't need a big wide-angle camera to see this. Brevin Jordan was right over there by Nico Collins. He was five yards closer. He was much more open on that side of the field. It was a much easier pass on fourth and two. I don't know what Tyrod sees in that situation and why he throws to Nico instead of Brevin Jordan. Maybe it's just confidence in somebody that's been out there more for him this year. And, of course, we talked about uh, Brevin Jordan has just played in the last few games. I don't know, but you know, a just bad decision by Tyrod make trying to make that throw and force it in there. Well, yeah, I mean, Nico Collins has made some good plays this year too. So, you know, you're talking about a couple of young guys right there. So, I mean, it would have been very minimal if he had caught that ball, but still, yeah, I, I just, again, the decisions, the play calling and just the decisions by Taylor, he just hasn't seemed as smart as I pictured him he would be. And this game, you know, definitely showed it. Usually you and I try to come up with a offensive and defensive MVP and, you know, every week outside of Tyrod Taylor, it's <laughs> like, where do we, where do you go for an offensive MVP? Cause typically we don't have anybody in the conversation. Occasionally you get a really good Brandon Cooks game. I, I don't even think it's worth naming an offensive MVP. Do you have a defensive MVP? Is there anybody, I mean, Grugier Hill continues to play great. That's about all I had from the positive standpoint. Was there anybody else that I'm missing in that group? Well, I mean, you could say, you know, Martin might've had a, a couple of sacks if it hadn't been for the, the penalty. Probably, yeah, Grugier Hill. I mean, it's going to be awfully hard to keep him off Every week you're calling his name for something. So I, I might go ahead with Grugier Hill, but you know what? I guess if you put a gun to my head and made me pick an offensive MVP, I'll give it to Jordan because he did catch the touchdown pass. So he at least scored, you know, <laughs> at least he got some points on the board. That's about all you can say as far as the Texans offense goes. Grugier Hill, seven tackles, six solo, one sack, one tackle for loss, one quarterback hit. Yeah, it's an easy call. He's my guy. I, I would have to go with that. And and we just keep calling his name more and more every week. I just, I love the looks of this guy, Robert. Let's move on from the Texans because that's about all I got. Do you have anything? To, I want to get away from them as quickly as possible. No, we're done. No, I'm, I'm absolutely uh, Texans done. All right. Now, this isn't any better news and, and really uh, it's frustrating because on Saturday, Stephen, I got a message from a friend that Curly Colt passed away. And, you know, he, he had just tweeted out a week and a half ago that he had pancreatic cancer. And when I saw... 
the the tweet from him it got me to tweet out my thoughts about him and of course i included it uh or, or concluded it by saying keep fighting curly and within a day cult followed us on twitter which just made my day hate the circumstances mm. but his follow meant he saw my message and you know just th that at least warmed my heart a little bit and you know i thought you know maybe because he was tweeting stuff out that he felt like he had a shot at it and he was doing okay at this point and maybe it had just started but it turns out this had been going on for a while you know robert it's it just for me for a guy you know who grew up in the love you blue era i mean i was I was a teenager when all that was going on, and Curly Cope was one of my favorite players. I wouldn't say I liked him more than like Elvin Bethea, Robert Brazil, but he was right behind him. I mean, this guy, he quietly played the kind of defense that you wanted to play. He he wasn't flashy, but he got the job done. And talk about strong. I, I heard a story once when I was a kid. I I don't know if it was true or not, but I heard he would he used to just pick up this whole stack of tires and throw them you know, just for exercise. I mean, that, that's how strong the guy was. You know, when I hear about guys like Curly Culp, and I know we'll get to a former Astro here in a minute, that, you know, I followed when I was a kid. It just, gosh, it's so depressing to think that, you know, these guys, you watched them once when you were growing up and how great they were, and now we're losing them one by one. And, and Curly Culp just can't say enough about how the guy helped anchor an Oilers defense. It may not have been the Steel Curtain, but I tell you what, they played some darn good defense over the years, and Curly Culp was one of those reasons. Most people listening probably don't remember Curly Culp. You know, he was fantastic starting in the late 60s all the way through the 70s. And if it wasn't for Curly Culp, the 3-4 defense might not have come along when it did. His ability basically made Chiefs head coach Hank Stram change his defense. Bum Phillips said, Quote, Curly made the 3-4 defense work. He made me look smart. And for those of you out there who are like, how good was Curly Culp? Who was this guy? Well, Hall of Fame center Jim Otto said, Curly Culp was perhaps the strongest man I ever lined up against. Going to your yeah. point, Stephen. And there's a story from his days at Arizona State that he reportedly broke the helmets of three teammates during a scrimmage. I believe it. <laughs> what kind of athlete was he? Culp was the NCAA heavyweight wrestling champ in 1967 and named to the 1968 U.S. Olympic team. He was first-team All-American at Arizona State before he was drafted in the second round by the Broncos. And for some reason, they wanted to turn him into an offensive lineman. So hmm. when that failed, they traded him to the Chiefs, where he won Super Bowl IV. He was a six-time Pro Bowler. Uh, he made all of his guys with the Chiefs better. Most of those guys are in the Hall of Fame on defense. He was not just a six-time Pro Bowler. Uh, the, those weren't just with the Chiefs. Four of those, including every year from 75 to 78, he was a Pro Bowler with the Oilers. In 1975, his first season with the Oilers, he was the NFL defensive MVP at nose guard. Think about that. At nose guard, he was the defensive MVP. Yeah, that's almost unheard of. And man, I just, you know, you're telling those stories about how strong he is. I believe it because this guy was just a mammoth. And yeah, he came in the Bum Phillips era. And that's the thing is that, you know, he, he, the Oilers weren't his only team. He did play for the Chiefs, as you mentioned, but he didn't lose much of a step. And you talk about making a defense better. I, I honestly believe Curly Culp, you know, at the time that he came in and the Oilers were just starting to pick up some momentum and starting to be a good team. I believe Curly Culp did make everyone in that defense around him better. 
I believe, even though he got his undergrad degree at Arizona State, that's where he went to college and play football. I believe he got some a degree at the University of Houston, at the University of Texas. I mean, he did stuff for charity. He was just a good guy. Like every one of these Love You Blue Oilers, they loved each other. They were such fans of each other as human beings. And of course, the Oilers fans loved all of these guys. And for good reason. It just seemed like there were so many really good guys. And Curly Culp, just the name Curly Culp, Stephen, it sounds like a guy that should be playing football. It sounds like a nose. If you were to create a name for a nose guard, you'd probably create the name Curly Culp. <laughs> and he wore number 78, Robert. And, and of course, the Oilers and Steelers had some great rivalries. Well, there was another guy that wore number 78. His name was Dwight White. And I tell you what, I, I was definitely happy that at least Curly Culp made the number 78 <laughs> great because I couldn't stand Dwight White because I was obviously not a Steelers fan. So, yeah, it, it just – I love the name. Curly Culp, it just rolls off the tongue. You know, how can you not like a guy with a name like that, right? And he was a good guy, as so many of those Oilers guys were on the, on those teams. You've even interviewed a few of them, Robert, you know, with Elvin Bethea, Robert Brazil. These are guys you just – you don't see that kind of – I'm not saying that there aren't good – guy players in the NFL. That's not what I'm saying. But just the way these guys were with each other, it was it was about the team. It was about the game. And you're seeing that less and less now, I think. And we saw that the Texans had just maybe the worst trade in NFL history with DeAndre Hopkins, maybe the best trade in NFL history. The Oilers trade John Matuzak to the Chiefs. This is how they got Curly Culp. They traded John Matuzak yep. to the Chiefs for... Not just Curly Culp, but a first-round pick, which they then drafted. Who did they draft, Stephen, with that first-round pick? Yeah, you're going to catch me on this one. So. Oh, it's you got to remember <laughs> that this is Robert Brazil, Dr. Doom. Yeah, that was Robert. It was 76, wasn't it? Two Hall of Famers in that deal that they yeah. drafted, or that yeah. they got in the deal uh, between Brazil and Culp, and, and really the heart of that Love You Blue defense. And it's just amazing that Curly Culp took – 32 years from the time that he retired until he got into the Hall of Fame in 2013. And then John McClain and uh, there was a guy with the, one of the Dallas papers. I'm forgetting which one, but those two got him into the Hall of Fame. It, it took way too long because, Stephen, a lot of people believe. And if you start thinking about this, he is probably the best nose guard in NFL history. Look at the Hall well, of Fame list of yeah. nose guards, and there practically aren't any. It's it's Curly yeah, Culp, exactly and then start right. looking for the more guys that are nose guards, and you can't find them. And who would want to play nose guard? I mean, honestly, would you want to play nose guard, Robert, being right up on the center? And just, yeah, it, that is a difficult place to play. And the fact that Curly Culp was able to do that, not just on an average basis, but pretty darn well, yeah, that it's a shame that for some guys it takes longer. I'm just glad that he was able to live to see it because, you know, obviously he only lived eight more years after he was inducted. Yeah, his son was the one that inducted him into the Hall of Fame. And just you can find that on YouTube. It's really good to watch his son with the induction and the video of not just him, but then Curly's speech. And, you know, we got some more sad news with a couple of former Astros. But before we get to that, a little Astros good news. They signed Phillies free agent reliever Hector Neres, reportedly two years, $8.5 million a year, decided to spend money on Neres over Kendall Graveman, who went to the White Sox. It was one year less on the contract, 
again, the numbers pretty similar. Eight million, I think it was three years, twenty-four for for Graveman. What did you think about that, Stephen? Well, that was interesting. I mean, especially considering what you gave up for Kendall Graveman, I just thought that they might make a better pitch for him. So yeah, I'm a little bit surprised, but you know what? And and you said it, I think, when you were on with Sean, Robert. It, it's hard to criticize the moves that James Cliff has been making so far. I mean, it's still young in his tenure, obviously. So I guess I'm going to have to trust Click's instincts on this, but it, it did catch me a little by surprise, I must admit. The jury's still out because you feel like these guys are similar, but Graveman, you know, he was having difficulty with his arm later in this season. It seemed like he was right. wearing out, and Neris is a very veteran reliever as far as innings and being in the bullpen. He's 32 fastball splitter and and slider he has a career 342 ERA 1.192 whip 11 and a half Ks per 9 innings to 3 and a half walks and he's a workhorse since 2016 Stephen second in baseball and relief appearances third in relief innings yeah not bad i mean he certainly has the proven track record and if there's anything the the astros i mean we knew that the the bullpen even with these trades wasn't going to be the same during the offseason so i i guess it's not shocking in any way. I'm just a little bit surprised that maybe they didn't make a better run for Graveman, but this this may pay off as well. It's a wait and see for me. The next move, Yimmy Garcia. We got to talk about that one too, and let's see what we think about that. He signs with George Springer's Blue Jays, reportedly, as we are talking on Sunday, a two-year, $11 million deal, roughly, my math, $5.5 million a year. Should the Astros have matched it? Yeah, I don't know about that, Robert. I mean, look, I, I was not a fan of Yimmy Garcia until we got into the postseason, and all of a sudden he shows up. So I don't know what to make of that so much. I, I, I'm not that upset about the fact that he's gone. Uh, he goes to the Blue Jays, obviously. But yeah, I, I don't know that I'm quite as puzzled by that move as as I was as far as Kendall Graveman not making a better run for him. The other story that relates to the Astros, we've been talking about the potential of Starling Marte, but he signed with the Mets and it was a big contract. And frankly, I wasn't a fan of giving him a bunch of years for somebody that's, what is he, 33 now? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I was not too surprised. I mean, I've heard his name bandied about quite a bit as far as the Astros, you know, might show some interest, but I don't, I wouldn't have given a long contract to a guy, not, not of his caliber. No, I, so it doesn't break my heart as far as that goes. If you're not going to give five years to a younger George Springer, why would you give four years to? Exactly. Starling Marte. Yeah. Bill Verdon and Doug Jones, Stephen. We lost a couple of Astros I, I, sort of legends, definitely with Bill Verdon, I would say. He's kind of an Astros legend. Yeah, Bill Verdon definitely is an Astros legend. You know, but, And here's the thing about Doug Jones. Doug Jones may not be a legend in the sense of longevity and – yeah, you may not. When when you start thinking of great Astros relievers, he may not come to mind before guys like Billy Wagner, you know, Dave Smith, guys like that. But let me tell you something. Doug Jones, in the short time he was with the Astros for a couple of seasons, was all-star caliber. You know, in 92, he had that great season and he made the all-star team. And I don't know, Robert, I guess I'd forgotten this, but, you know, Doug Jones, he was 14th in the league and MVP voting in 92. We had, that's how great of a season he had. And something else I guess I'd forgotten. He spent 16 years in the major leagues. I guess I just didn't know that he pitched that long, but he actually made five all-star appearances. So Doug Jones was no slouch. You know, he may not have been Mariano Rivera in the sense of how great a reliever, you know, and again, with the Astros, you know, when you're talking Dave Smith and the ones I mentioned, Brad Lidge and some of those guys, but there was a time when Doug Jones really helped the Astros, especially 
in that 92 season. Longevity, to say the least, 29th in history, 303 saves, five 30-plus save seasons, three three more with at least 20. So he was around for a while. By the time he got to the Astros, he kind of looked like he had been around for a while. He had that mustache. He didn't look like much of an athlete when you saw him out there on the mound. He looked <laughs> kind of like a, a truck driver or something like that. I was like, who's this guy that just walked onto the mound? Is he, is he with the Astros or is he uh, bringing in some uh, meat to the Astrodome in his, in his uh, 18 wheeler? I didn't know. I wasn't sure. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, kind of a, a bit by surprise that we lost Doug Jones. And then of course, Bill Verdon, you know, you associate him as far as the Astros as a manager, obviously, and as a player, you know, Bill Verdon was part of that 1960 Pirates team that won the World Series. But a lot of people may not know, Robert, he started with the Cardinals. He was the rookie of the year in 1955 with the Cardinals. And I want to say it was a year after that, maybe a couple years after that. They traded him to the Pirates, and he spent the rest of his career as a player with the Pirates. He played alongside. He was a center fielder, was Bill Verdon. He played alongside Roberto Clemente for a lot of those years. And then Bill Verdon ends up managing the Pirates for a while. When he came to the Astros in 1975, as strange as it may seem, Robert, he, he came in the middle of the season. He came in the summer. I want to say it was July or August, because I remember I was following the team then. They were dead last in the NL West. And, you know, they still had guys like Doug Rader and Bob Watson and Cesar Cedeno and Lee May and guys like that. But they were cellar dwellers. And he replaced Preston Gomez, who was the manager at the time. And as you and I know, Robert, because we've talked about it on this show quite a bit, Bill Verdon managed the Astros for eight years, and he was the one who engineered the first playoff in Astros history in 1980, and then he did it again in 81. And, of course, things kind of went downhill after that. But, man, you can't say enough about what Bill Verdon did. He, he and Tal Smith both came in 75 from the Yankees, where Tal was the general manager, and Bill actually managed the Yankees for one season in 74. They were the tandem that turned the Astros around and made them a playoff team for the first time. And isn't it a coincidence that he came to Houston about the exact same time as Curly Colt did, and it, it was him that's kind of the person that we all relate with the Astros turnaround, it's in the same way Culp and Bum Phillips and, and that group is what we relate the Oilers, you know, them getting all of a sudden good is the same thing with the Astros. And then Bill Verdon takes him to the 1980 playoffs. And we got to talk about that, Stephen, because how different would his legacy be remembered if J.R. Richard doesn't go down and they had all those injuries in the playoffs. And we talked about that during the pandemic, when they replayed that Phillies Astros series on AT&T sports, it was a bunch of things that had to go wrong for the Astros to lose that series against the Phillies, the, the five game series. And they were, they're up seven to two. And if they win that, they probably beat the Royals. They probably won the World Series. It's a totally different thought process of, you know, how Bill Verdon gets remembered at that point. Yeah, and I've said that a lot, Robert. And, of course, we all know, you know, we can talk about what if. It's no different, I guess, than saying, well, what if Michael Jordan hadn't retired with the Rockets of one of those NBA championships? I mean, we can do that. But, yeah, I absolutely think that, you know, when you have J.R. Richard in the mix, and, and what's amazing is, you know, Nolan Ryan had that lead, in the deciding game and it just fell apart, you know, how often is that going to happen? It's just one of those things. It could have gone either way. The Astros put up a fight in that series. But as you said, no J.R. Richard, too many injuries. The Phillies did go on to win the World Series. So, I mean, I guess if you're going to lose, you want to lose to the team that wins the World Series. But that notwithstanding, Bill Verdon, 
you just you can't say enough. I mean, a lot of listeners may not remember him, but trust me, I, I followed the Astros even before Bill Verdon got there. You talk about a guy that was able to turn a team around that was just in the doldrums. I mean, they were horrible that year in 75. It may not have been like the three straight 111 losing seasons that you know the Astros had, but it was bad enough. And between him and Tal Smith, he just totally changed the look of that team and got them where they were. And they, you know, even before 1980, they almost made the playoffs in 79. But the Reds caught up to them and won the division. And uh, the Astros were, you know, outsiders looking in. But you just knew even then that they were poised for something great the next year. He just looked like a minister that could have been at your local church. And I never heard anything real bad about Bill Verdon. He seemed like just such a decent guy. Is, is that what you remember? He's just a good guy. He was a good guy. Now, he was a very serious type. And I, and I always tell this story to people. You know, my grandmother, you know, she would watch baseball with me. And she was more the flamboyant type. She loved guys like Tommy Lasorda and Pete Rose. I mean, she was an Astros fan. But I have to say, Robert, she didn't particularly like Bill Verdon any more than she liked Tom Landry, just because of their solemn, serious presence. You know, she liked guys like Tommy Lasorda, who just ran up and down the dugout and, you know, glad-handing and having fun. Bill Verdon wasn't that type of guy, but the players loved him. And yeah, you never heard a bad thing about him. That's that's for sure. I, I certainly didn't. He reminded me a little bit when you watched him, like Father Mulcahy from MASH is what I think. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good comparison, yeah. With the glasses and all this stuff. But anyway, yeah. uh, l- let's move over to college football. Some good news from football this week. The Cougs finish off the regular season, season with their 11th straight win, beating UConn 16th right now in the AP Top 25 as of Sunday. All of this sets up a hell of a matchup against undefeated Cincinnati in the AAC championship. They obviously have no shot at the college playoff, Stephen, but this feels like they would be playoff worthy if the NCAA had a real eight or more likely 16 team playoff like they should. Yeah. And they keep talking about it. You know, how many years did it take just to get the playoff they have right now? Well, it's probably going to take about as long for the eight game, uh, eight team playoff or whatever it is that they have been talking about. Since, you know, the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely, Robert. The the Cougars should certainly be worthy. And and you wouldn't have thought that after the first game. And even after the first few games, when they were winning, it's not like they were playing anybody that, you know, raised your eyebrows. And here's the deal. You know, they may not be in the playoff, but they certainly could affect the playoff by knocking off Cincinnati. Can you imagine what kind of mess that would put the playoff system in that, you know, Cincinnati is poised to make it. Cougars knock them off, or let's say, let's say they don't, but they lose in a close game. That could even have implications on the playoff. So even if the Cougars aren't in it, they could affect it. What also could affect the Cougars with a win is recruiting, not just the fact that they're going to be going to the Big 12, but recruiting guys is a lot easier when you just knocked off one of the best teams in the country and everybody saw it because it was a national game, a nationally important game. Well, that's right. And I mean, a lot of the Cougars wins, you know, have been under the radar. I mean, even the SMU win, as it turns out, I mean, SMU has fallen on hard times since then. So how good was that win? Really? A win against Cincinnati absolutely would create some attention going into next season. And the Cougars, you know, they would certainly be going to a bowl game regardless. So they could start racking up the attention it certainly would help them in recruiting, and then going to the Big 12 certainly won't hurt that either. Yeah, I need to think about maybe getting a, one of our 
former guest on to preview that football game. I'm going to think about that this week. And we got to talk a little bit about Rice football, which there hasn't been much to talk about this year, but it's worth mentioning what happened on Saturday. They beat Louisiana Tech to finish the season 4-8. Well, whatever. But that's not the story. The story, Gabe Taylor made the game-clinching interception with 19 seconds left on the seven-yard line. So why is that a story? And who is Gabe Taylor? Well, Gabe Taylor is the younger brother of former Miami Hurricane and NFL Pro Bowl safety, Sean Taylor, who died exactly 14 years ago Saturday. So I am sure there were lots of emotions in the Taylor family after that interception, 14 years ago to the day that Sean Taylor Mm. died. Yeah, you know that that is significant in that family. There's no doubt about it. Yes, I certainly remember Sean Taylor and just, you know, how tragic that situation was. And, you know, these are the stories we keep hearing from Rice. And I just I pull for the Owls so much every year to to have something good happen. You know, you you want the best for that football team year in and year out. They just, uh, you know, they're, they're just not in a position. They're, they're not the Rice Owls of the 1950s. <laughs> Jess Neely, you know, and Dickie Nagel and, and guys like that. But stories do come out of Rice still, and that's definitely one of them. And you just hope that they could get more consistency and at least be something to watch in the years to come. Well, let's go back across town, back over to the Cougs, Kelvin Sampson's team. An up and down three days at the Maui Classic. They crushed Butler and Oregon on Monday and Wednesday, but sandwiched in between all of that was a incredibly frustrating loss to Wisconsin. They fall behind by 20 at the half, I think, and lose by two. Jamal Shedd tried to pass the ball with a second left instead of taking a shot, but the game was lost even in that first half where just nothing went right. The defense was not the defense that I'm used to seeing with the Cougars, and the offense was just terrible. Well, and and they couldn't stop, uh, what was his name, Johnny Davis? I know his last name was Davis, who was just hitting three-pointers left and right for Wisconsin. And, I mean, that's really the difference, Robert, is that first half – when they fell behind so much, and yeah, they almost made up for it. They could have won it in the second half. But, you know, against Hofstra in the very first game of the season, they did the same thing. They didn't fall behind by 20, perhaps. They they kind of stayed with them, but they finally turned on the Jets in the second half. You know, I don't know that there's some of these players still trying to play together, get used to each other, and that sort of thing. But the fact that they made the comeback they did against Wisconsin, again, I tell you, the coaching makes the difference. And Kelvin Sampson is just not one of those guys that's going to let his team lay back like that. I, I would have want to be a fly on the wall in his locker room at halftime because I'm sure he lit into them and they come out in the second half. And here's the thing, you know, Wisconsin started missing shots in the second half. The Cougars started trying to catch up and that's when it started. But yeah, I think that game was definitely lost in the first half. You can't, you can't get in that type of hole and then make up for it time after time after time. One guy that really needs to get it going, though, for the Cougs is Tremont Mark. He's coming back from the injury, hasn't looked all that good. He was looking good before the season starts from all you know, all, all you heard, but Mark's got to get it going because they need his offense, and he just doesn't look comfortable shooting threes, and he's got to be able to shoot threes with his physical ability, and, and you need somebody that can not only make shots, but you know, you've got to be able to make him with range in college basketball, especially at his size. So, you know, that that's something that's got to improve as the season goes along. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the one thing I really liked about Mark. Last year, is he could come off the bench when they really needed a spark. He was the guy who provided the spark with a three or at least great shooting. And 
We just haven't seen it this year. Hopefully it's just he's still trying to find his way back from the injury, but he's going to need to pick it up soon, you know, especially when conference play gets underway and things start rolling for the Cougars to be as effective as we hope they will be the rest of the season. All right, one last story we've got in this show, and it's one that I I thought I would never see the day, but the USFL is back, and the Houston Gamblers are back. Stephen, can you believe it? Man, you know, and and I guess, you know, we may be running into, once again, people saying, well, who the heck are the Houston Gamblers? Go on YouTube, because I'm telling you, they were something to watch. Can we bring back uh, Jim Kelly and, you know, all those guys from the Gamblers? They were a winning team, Robert. You know, the... The Oilers had fallen on hard times back in the early 80s after the Bum Phillips era. You know, the USFL comes along and the Houston Gamblers, you know, they they start winning and winning. And the, the kind of offense they had, you know, kind of reminiscent of what the Oilers eventually did with a run and shoot, or at least, you know, they were exciting to watch anyway. Yeah, bring back the Houston Gamblers. If we can bring all those guys back and put them back, you know, on a time machine and make them young again and play that kind of football. Texans who? Jack Pardee was the coach, and he, of course, goes on to coach the Cougars and goes on to coach the Oilers, and basically a lot of those concepts you're seeing all over football everywhere. The gamblers, in a way, were the lead in that, and guys like uh, June Jones and Miles Davis, and, you know, they're they're coming back with this USFL league, but apparently they're going to play in just one city. It's not going to be where you get – it's a weird concept because there's not going to be – a oh you're playing home and away it's it's all the games are going to be in play they're going to be played once i guess because of cost considerations or something like that but they're relaunching in april of 2022 39 years after playing the first season and 36 years after seizing operations and then the teams are they're all familiar names because they're part of that original group the four northern division teams the michigan panthers New Jersey Generals. You remember Doug Flutie and Herschel Walker played yep. with the New Jersey Generals. The Philadelphia Stars, Pittsburgh Maulers. The Southern Division with the Gamblers has the Birmingham Stallions, the New Orleans Breakers, and the Tampa Bay Bandits. I believe Steve Young was with the Bandits for a yeah, little bit. Yeah, he was. He sure was. Steve Ban- uh, Steve, Steve Bandit. Well, he was a Bandit. Yeah, Steve Young, you know, he got that with the Bandits and then, of course, went on to NFL fame. But that's how he got his recognition, Robert and, I, you know, and all kidding aside, I, I've become pretty skeptical about these leagues of, you know, how long are they going to stick around? But, you know, each one that comes along, there are at least a few guys that get in the NFL. I mean, look at P.J. Walker. We talked about him, what, a couple weeks ago in the newly renovated XFL that didn't even last a half a season. So, you know, with, with guys that get opportunities in leagues like the USFL and things like that, you know, it's it's good. I mean, I mean, I have no problem with it. But to say they're going to have longevity, yeah, I'm just I'm not so convinced about it. But yeah, it's pretty exciting to think about that. You know, the Houston Gamblers, even though they're not in Houston, just just to think about it, maybe they'll be back. I got it wrong, and and you remembered wrong just like I did because it wasn't the Tampa Bay Bandits. He was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in '85 and '86, but he was in the USFL with the Los Angeles Express. It was the Express. You're right. Oh, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Yeah, he was in the USFL, but you're right. It was the Express. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they were kind of like the Tampa Bay Bandits. They were about that good, right? <laughs> back then, yeah. Back then. Yeah, they didn't have, I guess they didn't have Tom Brady back then, did they? No Tom Brady. No, this wasn't the days of the Buccaneers when they had Doug Williams. So it's really cool to see the gamblers back. And 
you know, some of these other teams, but it's not the same because what made the USFL cool was they were getting big name guys and they spent money and there's not going to be the owners and the, the ones that are willing to spend that money. They just basically threw a ton of money so they could get Herschel Walker coming off, you know, Heisman and, 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 and Doug Flutie coming off Heisman and, you know, they had Bo Jackson for a, a second, I believe, right? Did he play yeah. the USFL for a little bit? I, I don't know. I, he may have, but it wasn't very long if he did. I, I don't seem to remember that. But, yeah, they, you know, and here's the thing is that they they touted themselves as a spring league. And then, you know, when they started trying to compete in the fall with the NFL, I mean, that was the disaster that definitely, and we know, you know, I don't want to get political here, but we know Donald Trump was behind all that. You know, but I don't think you're going to see a lot of that this time around. But that's what happens with a lot of these leagues. The guys get in there, they get greedy, and uh, they get a little too greedy. And before you know it, you're basically on your butt looking up at the other guys running off. So that's what happened to the USFL back in the 80s. Again, case of mismanagement, they only lasted a few years. But there were some guys that made the NFL that, you know, you, you may not kind of you, you may kind of know who they are now. But some of them, you may know who their names are, even if you didn't watch them play. Yeah, I, I got that wrong too. My memory, my memory is becoming Swiss cheese. Bo was not. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think I remembered him being in there. Yeah, he 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 did not. It seemed like he played in just about every other league: the NFL, Major League <laughs> Baseball, whatever. Uh, but yeah, he did not play in the USFL. But the cool thing is, I guess the gamblers are back. So maybe your gamblers, you can pull out your gamblers gear now, Stephen. You got your old yeah. baseball cap or t your gamblers t shirt. Yeah, yeah, I wish. I, I, you know, I'd left Houston by then, and I followed the gamblers kind of from a distance. Yeah, I wish I had some of that paraphernalia. Might uh, actually go pretty good price right now. Can we get Jim Kelly to come toss the coin, or maybe, maybe he could coach us. Maybe he could coach the gamblers. How's his health doing these days? Hopefully, he's good. It's funny. I was thinking about him the other day, even before I saw this story, Robert. I kind of wondered. You know, we haven't heard much about him in the last few years, but he certainly made quite a comeback. Uh, you know, in his own right, from cancer, as far as I know. He's still doing okay. He's hanging in there. But, boy, he had quite a battle with that a few years ago, didn't he? Yeah, and Jim Kelly, it was really fantastic to get to watch the early stages of his career. And I, I kind of stayed a fan of his a after he left. And, you know, luckily he was not really part of that Bills comeback against the Oilers because that would have really stuck it into the heart a little bit <laughs> deeper. I mean, Frank Reich, obviously being a backup, didn't help the situation, but Jim Kelly, you know, you, you still love them a little bit from his days with the gamblers and hopefully he's doing good and maybe he can somehow be a part of this deal. And, you know, Jack Pardee is gone, but maybe Ricky Sanders or Gerald McNeil can be a part of the, the, the new Houston oh, Gamblers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are names. You definitely, you think of the gamblers. Those are the guys you think of. Jim Kelly, Gerald McNeil, Ricky Sanders. They were the heart and soul of that team. And yeah, Jim Kelly, another guy, you know, he goes in the NFL Goes to four Super Bowls. It's a shame he didn't win any of them. But Jim Kelly, yeah, I just have always was a big fan of his with the Gamblers, even though I, I didn't watch a whole lot of their games, Robert, but I at least pulled for him from a distance. That's all we got. It's a long show, but we yeah, had so much lot. interesting stuff to talk about and, and just a, a really fun week with the Rockets and a fun week with the Cougars. But, you know, the, the sadness of losing some Houston Legends. I would call some of those guys legends. Well, definitely Curly Culp and, and Bill Verdon for sure. Well, and I mean, you know, for a short time, Jug Jones, you know, maybe not a legend, but he was in the right place at the right time. But yeah, unfortunately, they say things happen in threes. And let's hope we don't have that to talk about next week, Robert. But yep, a lot on this show for sure. Hopefully we got some more Rockets wins to talk about. Until next time, 
have a great week and go out get your holiday shopping done because it's coming up on us fast (laughs) we're only three four weeks away can you believe it you're listening to houston sports talk don't forget to follow houston sports talk on facebook and twitter subscribe to us on itunes spotify the google podcast app or the stitcher app you can support us by giving us a five-star review on itunes or by telling your friends about us spread the word everybody thanks for listening